It feels very lovely to be here, and I appreciate the warm welcome and all the kindness that has gone on to inviting and taking care of me. Thank you. Uh, Susan and I were talking about titles for this evening's talk, and I came up with a few, and she was the one who said, This is it. What's it all about? And I thought, oh, great title. It's a total setup. <laughs> you know, it's so easy to long for somebody to come and have the answer about what's it all about. You know, and to be able to wrap it up and to, you know, to dot the I's and cross the T's and to, and to put it out there to make sense out of the crazy things that we have to navigate in this world. You know, and to put some context on Occupy and the political nightmares and the, and the, and the economic challenges and, and what's happening in our, in our environmental world. And the pressures with, with so many people struggling to, to pay for mortgages and to get enough food on the table. And, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and how is it that we can make sense out of all of this and understand what it's all about? You know, what's going on? So I thought, this is perfect. I'm walking into a total setup. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not going to answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) But what I can say is is, is that what I know is, is, is that every opportunity in our life is an opportunity for waking up or for being more confused. Every single opportunity. You know, what happens when we open up the refrigerator, when we relate to our family, when we step outside and we trip, you know, when the cat is sick, you know, or when the fumes are making you sick, you know, Every single thing that we have to deal with is an opportunity of either being more confused or of a little bit more opportunity to wake up. And this enormous longing for clarity, to have some kind of a picture or a person or a viewpoint or something that's going to make sense out of it all, is part of our longing you know, to locate ourselves in a world that makes sense. And we can relate to that longing in a way that supports us waking up, or we can relate to that longing in a way that helps keep us more confused or frightened, 
disoriented or uncertain. And so for me, what it's all about is not so much about coming up with a picture that makes sense out of the whole thing that's happening, but about an immediate response about how are we relating to what's arising. Is it kind? Is it compassionate? Does it have edges in it? Are we recoiling backwards? Are we pulling away when what we need to do is show up? So Susan gave a brief history of what's been happening in the Buddhist world. Very brief. And, you know, even this question of what's going on with the Buddhist scene and how come it's been this way and where is it going from now and, you know, and why did you want to become a nun in the first place? You know, these are really exciting stories, but where are they coming from? And how is it that where they come from can either support the heart's journey towards awakening or can take us one step away from that? So the question really is not so much about how do we create an overview that makes sense about what's going on, but how do we create a present moment responsiveness to embrace what's going on. That I feel confident to talk about. So I started us with a a very short meditation with standing. Very short. If I had felt a little bit more comfortable with this group and a little bit more sense of the kind of time, I would have extended it quite a bit longer that we really learn how to relax into our own body and energize. When we don't have a basis of body for awareness to rest in, we have very little ground for navigating how we show up for everything else that's arising in our life. We come from a society that overemphasizes our intellect And we live beside ourselves, in front of ourselves, most of the time. For most people that I know, body awareness is special needs practice. You know, our attention does not easily rest in our body. It is everywhere except there. And yet when we have a connection with our body, when we are rooted to the earth, when we can feel the elements that are moving through us, not as a story, but as a direct experience, when we have some capacity to read the things that we're feeling, then we have a somatic sounding fork for whether what we are doing has kindness in it or irritation and ill will, confusion in it. You know, when we watch what happens with our thinking, we are capable of justifying anything in the entire world. It's amazing what we can do. And so we have to come up with a basis that is somehow more reliable than just the loops that we can generate in our head. 
because the loops can go from one extreme to the other extreme and back again and feel totally comfortable that that's normal. And so if what we're wanting is to find a way to respond to what's arising where there's less confusion, there's more clarity, there's less irritation, less ill will, there's more kindness, where do we start from? We need to start with where we're at. And where we're at includes how we are feeling in our body as a basis for measuring what's happening in our response to what's going on. Now, lots of people have all kinds of things going on, and I hear stories about some stuff that people are navigating, and there's a lot of overwhelm for a lot of people. A lot. It's like the fire's cranked up, and it's just really intense. There's a lot of pressure, a lot of information, a lot of logistics. And people have the idea that if they're meditating, they should not feel overwhelmed. But where did that idea come from? It's an idea. It's not a helpful idea. If overwhelm is what we're experiencing, then we need to learn to respond to it with compassion rather than demand that it not be there. And one of the things that's really hard when you're feeling overwhelmed is to have this quiet but very, very pervasive story going, I shouldn't be feeling this. If I had been meditating correctly, I wouldn't be feeling this. But what we learn about with meditation is that what is, is. What is happening is worthy of our attention. And the stories that we make about it are often not at all helpful. And so we have to recognize the story for what it is. A story or a view or an opinion about what is happening. And then come in direct contact with the experience itself. But overwhelm is as valid an object of meditation as any. It's a totally acceptable object to meditate on. And we can know what overwhelm feels like by letting our attention rest in our body and noticing how we contract away from it, hoping that it will go away, and how we can long for it to be different. And when we are present with the contraction, we can learn to soften around that. And when we are present for the longing, we can learn to give some spaciousness around that. And as the secondary responses begin to settle out, then we have the capacity to be with things as they are. And when we're with things as they are, then there is a way that they can shift and change. The Buddha did not wake up to how things were supposed to be. The Buddha woke up to how things are. 
So when we are navigating the world as it is, with the level of complexity and information and duties and details, it's a very relevant question. What's actually happening right now? And the next very relevant question is, and how am I relating to that? Because we can see that all kinds of magnificent things can be happening, and we can be utterly miserable. (laughs) And we can also see that really tragic things can happen, and we can feel even and solid and clear. So it isn't the external thing so much as it is what we do with it, how we relate to it, how we are responding to it, where our sense of inner well-being and peacefulness is what we feel or we don't feel. And that is the key. So it's not about looking out there as it is about being here, And as we are here, then we have the capacity to figure out what needs to be done, if anything needs to be done, as a response to the larger situation. Now, let me stop for a moment and tell some stories. I was interested in the Dhamma from the time I was 17. And for me, it was a little bit like somebody throwing a match on a bonfire that was doused with kerosene that had been baking in the Australian (laughs) desert. (laughs) You know? I was just ignited with this sense of the rightness of it. And from the very beginning, I had this really strong kind of longing of wanting to be a nun, which is totally out of character. It doesn't belong to my culture. It doesn't belong to my personality. It doesn't belong to my family background. I come from a Jewish family. We don't have nuns. <laughs> okay? There's like no frame of reference that this was coming out of. Okay? But for me, it was really strong, and it was strong from the very beginning. And I had no clue in the whole world what being a nun meant. I'd never met one. I'd never heard about them, you know. But for me, what it meant was is, is that the whole of my life was somehow focused on waking up, on realizing what was true, on seeing where suffering was and coming to an end of suffering. And even though the complexity of what I've had to navigate is so remarkable, that even though I have lived in it, I still can hardly (laughs) wrap my mind around it. That basic thing is correct. That's what it's about. It's about focusing all of one's life energy on waking up. I spent mm, 20 years or so living in England, and during those years, I spent a number of times, a number of years living in Australia. And I went to the bush in Australia. And I have always, since the time I was a child, had a real strong sense of wellness in nature, being in the, by the ocean or being in the mountains or being by the stream. It's like somehow my mind comes into a natural resting place there, and I feel very comfortable in myself. And so 
There were a number of reasons why I went to Australia. And when I got there, you know, I was really quite effectively on the other side of the planet. And I had never been before. And I knew nothing of the culture or the place or the landscape or the creatures or the stars. You know, it was all foreign to me. And I was nervous, you know. It might have had something to do with the fact that the most lethally poisonous snakes were all living in the same place. (laughs) (laughs) But never mind. Anyway, it took a while for me to feel comfortable to, you know, get off the trail and explore. But after a while, I started to feel something that I'd never quite really felt before, and that was a deep sense of welcome from the land. You know, in the way that you can feel hugged by mom or grandma. You know, just embraced, like an absolute delight that I was there. Now, I've always had a kind of sense of being in tune with nature, but I never felt welcomed by the land like that. And that sense of welcome made me feel safe. And that sense of safety gave me the ground to open to things that I had never seen before. And I began to explore things in my own body and mind and psyche that were new, even though by that point I had been meditating many years, a couple of decades. And so it was fascinating for me to see the enormous connection between safety and depth. One needs to feel safe in order to investigate with depth. Now, I was experiencing safety from the land. But people in a group can make an effort to create safety for each other to get to know each other, to learn who each other is and what is happening for each other. And so as a group, as a community, as a sangha, you can learn how to support each other in a way that goes deeper than just knowing each other's names and the superficial details of each other's lives. And having lived in the community with the sisters, this is something that happened with us as sisters. And as we learned how to support each other, really, we had something that was like gold. Because it was no longer each of us feeling like we had to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But it was like we were weaving a web We're creating a field that we could relax into that would hold us in our own unfolding journey. It takes a lot of effort for a community to do that. And it goes against the grain because our society has a kind of glass ceiling on how much intimacy is tolerable how much trust is actually possible? How much is it okay to really allow oneself just to be? 
and not have to put on a face. And yet the effort to make something genuinely safe, to get to know each other deeper, pays off in such enormous dividends it helps support the individual process of depth in a way that is very difficult to describe. Each of us has our strengths and each of us has our weak spots and all of us have blind spots. A a loving community that is committed to waking up can mirror each other's strengths, can be patient and resilient and encouraging with each other's weak spots. And very gently, very tenderly, and very lovingly, slowly begin to illuminate the blind spots. There is nothing that is more precious in the world than that and to have people around you that are also committed in that way, not only to an abstract process of waking up, but to creating a context where each one brings forward what is needed to do the work, to understand how to respond what is happening right now through the challenges through the joys through the tragedies through the confusion through the uncertainties one of the things that I feel really um, blessed having been a part of a community for so many years is the understanding of the field that is created, that people tap into, that is not dependent on the individuals who are present. And so one of the sadnesses about being slightly extraterrestrial, you know, is is that there are not very many people who have contact with monastics, and that the situation in the country right now is very embryonic, And there are not very many places where the monastics are flourishing because it's still quite new in the Theravada tradition. And as a result of that newness, there are very few lay people who have regular contact with healthy communities of monastics. And so the sense of what it is to be in a field of different people with different precepts practicing together is either unfamiliar or completely unknown. And yet, the Buddha's intention was for this many-fold assembly to be in relationship with each other as a way of optimizing this potential for awakening for everybody. The Buddha talked about the fourfold assembly. But we are in a postmodern world where we are beyond binary definitions. 
it's no longer politically acceptable just to have things defined as male and female because they're people who neither identify with male nor female. They're in between. <laughs> and in the Buddhist time, there were monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen. And now we have priests who are a category in between. So we no longer just have four. We have many. And everyone is welcome, no matter what precept level one has, no matter what gender one has, no matter what orientation one has, in this journey of waking up. And so for me, the question isn't so much about how do we come up with a shape that makes sense out of everything outside that's going on. But how do we come up with a response that meets everything that is arising? And when I have that, when I feel confident to move through the world, and when I don't have that, then I feel very at sea, confused, at loss, not sure. But the blessings of the practice is is that it constantly brings me back to the aspiration of bringing every part into this (coughs) potential for awakening and using the simple things, the things that are here, like my body and my breath, as the ground to give me ballast to make every step. I will stop here. And we can change. And so rather than me just being the only person speaking, we can open this up for questions or comments or discussion as is most supportive for everyone in your own practice. I appreciate your attention.